We're in the middle of a sermon series we're calling Behold Your God, Discovering Who God Is and What He's Like. And the purpose of this series has been to unfold for us different attributes of God. And an attribute is simply something that is true about a person or thing. And so we've asked the question, how in the world can we discover what's true about God? We can't see Him. We can't feel Him. We can't hear Him with our ears. The way to discover what is true about God is going to the Bible because God is a self-revealing God. And to this point in the series, we have uh, discovered or, or learned about the fact that God is holy. Uh, he is three in one. We refer to that as God's triunity or His trinity. Uh, we've seen that God is wise, good, and the, uh, the past two weeks we've looked at the fact that God is love. So three weeks ago we we looked at God's loving nature, but in, then last week we looked at what that means for us. So because God is love, we ought also to love one another. And this morning our focus, our theme is that God is righteous, which is why we've gone to Isaiah 45, which says very clearly in verse 21, God is speaking, besides me there is no God, a righteous God and a Savior. Besides me, there is no God, a righteous God and a Savior. So God's righteousness, did you use the word righteousness in conversation or any text messages or emails this past week? Uh, unlike God's love and goodness and wisdom, uh, but more like God's holiness, righteousness is not a word we often use uh, unless it's sometimes used jokingly or as an expression, well, like, that was totally righteous. I've heard that expression before. Uh, not dealing with the righteousness of God at all, but it's not a word that we commonly use, but we actually know a lot more about it than we think that we know. Uh, you've thought about righteousness. I guarantee you, you thought about righteousness probably already this morning and many times throughout this past week, and you will think about righteousness in the week to come, even though you're not using the word itself. Let me explain. Uh, there's been this um, picture circulating on the internet. It has been for quite some time. It's a picture of two tape measures. And both tape measures have the same brand label on them, and both tape measures are, are butted against the same level surface. But the inch markers don't line up. And the caption says it all. This is why I have trust issues. The fact that you're looking at two tape measures, okay, how do I know which is the real one? Now, using biblical terminology, the Bible's words for this, the, the tape measure that is incorrect, would be unrighteous, and the Bible's word for the tape measure that actually is correct is the word righteous. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25 and verse 15, the Bible uses the word righteous to refer to measuring instruments. Uh, it says, you shall use accurate and honest scales and measures. The word translated in that verse, accurate, is most commonly rendered righteous, which simply means that when it comes to scales and you're, you're doing a, some sort of transaction, you're trying to weigh out wheat or barley or something else, it better be the case that the, that the weight on the other side is really a pound 
and not like someone shaved a few ounces off it, so, so they're getting more or less depending on whether they're a buyer or seller. It's got to be righteous. It's got to be accurate, right? That's, that's the meaning of righteousness. And, there, and I think the, the internet meme uh, is, does a good job of connecting this idea of trust with righteousness. Because you can see how quickly trust will break down when things are unrighteous. Because, to go back to the tape measure, the tape measure kind of constitutes a promise that inch markings are really an inch and not a quarter of an inch. And I think it's helpful for us to look at the world this way. Someone is righteous when what they ought to be matches what they really are. Someone or something is righteous when what they ought to be matches what they really are. And so when we begin to look at the world this way, you'll begin to realize we think about righteousness a lot. When you fill your tank uh, up with gas at the gas station, you, you're counting on the fact, you're trusting the fact that the, the meter that shows on the little screen there on the, uh, on the display is actually measuring gallons and not, quarter ga- not a quarter of, or three quarters of a gallon. You're, you're counting on that. You're thinking about what's wrong. Is this, is my employer, is he behaving toward me or paying me or, or giving me the benefits that he ought to give because he's my employer? You're an employee. Am I... Am I being what I ought to be as an employee? That's all dealing with this idea of righteousness, the difference between right and wrong. Is someone or something, are they, are they really acting, are they really performing what they have said they would, what they ought to? So we have all kinds of relationships in which we are to be righteous or right. If you're a teacher, you ought to impart knowledge to your students. If you're a wife, you ought to love your husband and be faithful to him. If you're a husband, you ought to be faithful and loving toward your wife. If you're, if you're a child, you ought to be respectful and obedient toward your parents. If you're a citizen of the country, this, this, this city of Concord or the surrounding cities and towns or of the state of New Hampshire, a citizen of the United States of America, you ought to ob- abide by the laws. There are certain obligations that we have. And to be righteous means to be what we ought to be. And we find these relationships going in so many different directions. But underneath it all, whether you're a husband or wife, a child, a grandmother or grandfather, an employee, an employer, underneath all these relationships, you have a fundamental relationship as a human being. Not horizontally to the government or to your family, to your spouse or children, but you have a vertical relationship to your Creator God. And to be righteous as a human being is to love and trust and obey your Creator. That's what it means to be righteous. It means who you ought to be lines up with who you really are. Now, I think that makes sense to most of us. The question then is, then what does it mean for God to be righteous? After all, God isn't answerable to anyone higher than He is, otherwise He wouldn't be God. What does it mean for God to be what he ought to be. God is not bound by any obligations outside of himself, but God binds himself to certain obligations by making promises. So for God to be righteous simply means that what God says he will do and what God really does match perfectly. 
It means, for God to be righteous means that there is a perfect match, just like the match between my hands, although they're not probably perfectly lining up. There's There's a perfect match in God's character between what he says he's going to do and what he actually does. He does it all the time. In fact, God is the only being in whom oughtness and isness are the same. He's the only being in which what he should be and what he really is are perfectly matching, which is to say he is completely righteous. He is the standard for everything. He is the reason why there is this idea of rightness and wrongness, even that exists in your own mind. God is the source and measure and judge of right and wrong. His being, His character undergirds everything, every moral obligation, every ethical principle. That's what it means for God to be righteous. Nehemiah 9.8 confirms this connection between promises and God's righteousness. It says, you have, uh, this is speaking to God, you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now, if we understand that to be the meaning of our righteousness and the righteousness of God, how would you evaluate the righteousness of the world that we live in now? Is your world a righteous world? Is your world a world of perfect, a perfect match between what people ought to be and what they really are? Is your government a righteous government? Is your school a completely righteous school? Is your workplace marked by complete righteousness? I think we'll be honest, we have to look at our world and we say, no, our world is a world that has been riddled and marred and twisted by unrighteousness. We are both the victims and the perpetrators of unrighteousness. We're the victims of righteousness in this sense. We often don't get what's due us. That's why throughout the Bible, it speaks of giving righteousness to widows and orphans. A child whose parents have died is in an unrighteous situation because no child ought to grow up without parents. No wife ought to live without the protection and love of a husband. And so the Old Testament is constantly telling people, do righteousness for these people because they have been the victims of an unfair condition. See, our world has been marked by unfairness and unrighteousness, and it would be one thing if we could just say, wow, I'm glad that at least I'm not perpetrating this, but all it takes is a look as a gaze from the unrighteousness of the world all around us. Just look inside. Is there complete righteousness in your own heart? Can we be honest with ourselves? We long for a world marked by righteousness, but a world of total righteousness could not include you and me because we are marked by unrighteousness too. Romans chapter 3 puts it this way, there is none righteous. Any objections? No, not one. People suffer because of unrighteousness. We live in a world marked by unrighteousness. Now, this takes us to our text here in Isaiah 45, where Isaiah is inviting people to see God's righteousness, not as their ruin, which is what we often fear it to be, but as their rescue. So I want to walk through the passage this way from verses, well, really verses 20 through the end of the chapter, 20 through 25, 
I want to see that Isaiah gives us a challenge, an invitation, and a reason, okay? So, when it comes to God's righteousness, is God, as a righteous God, does this mean that we're going to be ruined because we're not righteous? It should, really, but Isaiah invites us to see, Isaiah shows us a challenge, an invitation, and a reason. So, let's look at this challenge. We find it in verse 20. Um, Well, First of all, look, look to the context of this challenge. Uh, is the nation of Israel had been harassed by these powerful uh, countries, powerful nations. And the reason, from God's standpoint, why they had been allowed to be attacked and overcome by these enemies was because they, the Israelites, had loved, trusted, and hoped in other gods. They they felt these other gods, say the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Babylonians, that these other gods could be relied on and they could be trusted in and they could be loved. And so God allowed them to be taken away and to be harassed by by these nations, which raised a doubt in their minds. Who can we trust? Who can we love? Who can we depend upon? And God is speaking to a group of people who would be harassed by these nations, and He's saying, there is only one God you could depend upon, and that is, that is me, and I'll prove it by, in the future, I'm going to raise up a leader. His name will be Cyrus, and, he's, and after you're in captivity, He is going to lead you back into your city of Jerusalem. That's the context of the challenge. Now, the content of the challenge is this. God is saying, I dare you to find any God that can do that. I dare you to find any God who can keep promises like I can. Remember we said, what what does it mean for God to be righteous? Because God's not answerable to anything above Him. Well, God binds Himself to certain promises, and for God to be righteous means that what He promises, He will deliver. And He says, okay, because of that, I'm a righteous God. Now look all around you, and can you see any other God that can keep promises like I can? That's the challenge. Can you you see any of the, the gods that you've been worshiping, Isaiah is saying, can you see any other God that can keep such promises? because they had been worshiping false gods. Look at verse 20. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Now, you might say, well, what a relief uh, that we in this culture don't have to worry about idol worship because there's no idol worship going on in the 21st century, especially in America. Idol worship was something that they did when they built these stone, carved these stone statues and bowed down and worshiped them. We are idolaters just as any culture in this world that has ever existed. Someone has said that the human heart is an idol factory. We're always turning things into objects of worship. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you look to for security, significance, or satisfaction. That's an idol. Anything besides God that you look to for your security, your significance, or your satisfaction. And whatever you think that will give you, those, those three things at least are what you tend to love, trust, and obey. You say, I don't have any, I don't worship down, I don't go to the, a temple and worship any false idols. Well, we tend to take things that are good and we turn to them into things that we worship instead of God. Let me give you some examples. 
Could it be that your idol is financial security? Now, there is, there's nothing wrong with setting aside money for the future. In fact, that is a part of being a wise financial steward, a wise manager of your funds. But depending on financial security the, for the future, is that what you're depending on for your satisfaction, for your significance, for your security? Whatever an idol is, is something that, that you'll have to carry instead of it carrying you. Look at verse uh, 20. It says, they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols. How do you know something is an idol? You know something is an idol if it always takes more from you instead of giving to you. If you have to carry it, it's not a real God. If your obsession over financial security in the future is what terrifies you when the market goes down, angers you when there's bad financial policies, if it's just what, if it's you, all your hopes and fears are wrapped up in this, it's, an, it's a wooden idol you have to carry. It's always taking from you. But there's other idols in our culture. There's the idol of sexual expression. Sexual intimacy or sexual expression outside of marriage. Now, like financial security, is, is, is the intimacy to be enjoyed within marriage a good thing? Absolutely. But when it becomes out of bounds, you can, you can look for, for significance or satisfaction or security through, through a sexual expression that God has put boundaries around and said, this is to be enjoyed only, only in marriage, whether it be pornography or something else. Here, here's how you know that's an idol. You keep going back to it again and again and it always keeps sapping more out of you. It demands more and more of you, more of your time, more of your focus, more of your mind. There's other things. I'm going I'm to list, list two or three more things that we tend to, we're idol, idols that we tend to worship. What about alcohol? Our brother that was baptized last Sunday, made mention of this in his testimony. He put it this way. He said, I had a false God. Speaking of alcohol. It promised significance. It promised satisfaction. It promised security. And it kept, it was a wooden idol that kept taking from him and taking from him until it nearly wiped him totally clean, totally empty. What about, you, you might say, well, that's not my problem. I have much more sophisticated things going on in my life. It could be that your reputation is your idol. It matters so much to you about what people think of you. And you might say, well, I'm supposed to have a good reputation. I'm supposed to have a good testimony for Christ. But it's possible for even this good thing to become an idol. Is it possible that you become more content with what you appear to others than with what you appear to God? That you're looking for security and significance and satisfaction in what other people think about you? Well, what if you're called upon to be a fool for Christ's sake? Maybe you're looking for, maybe, maybe it's not just your reputation as a, as a pious grandmother or grandfather or or church attender or leader in the church maybe it's your reputation as being a kind of a christian who isn't overly committed as a christian i'm a christian and i know that in my culture it's it's not really cool to be a christian but don't know don't worry i'm not one of those kinds of christians i'm not going to go too far 
in, in this, this Christian thing. What if you're called to be a fool for Christ's sake? See, there's so many good things that we could turn into idols and worship them as our source of significance and security and, and satisfaction. And God is challenging. Yes, He was challenging the people in Isaiah's day, but He's also challenging us in our day, saying, can any of those keep their promises to you? Are any of those worth depending on, to trust in, to hope in, to love in? God says, I challenge you to find any such God that can actually keep promises like I keep promises. Because God says, I am a righteous God. What I promise to do, I will do. There is a perfect match between what I say I'll do and what I perform. Because God is a righteous God. He says, was it who declared this long ago? Who told it of old, speaking of his prediction that Cyrus would be the one to lead them, to send them out of their captivity? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. Our idols are not righteous, which means they make promises they cannot keep. This reminds me of a story I heard when I was a a little boy this idea of idolatry taking from us, not keeping promises. A story is about a little bird who had to work hard to find worms. And uh, it was, he would go and dig into the ground and find a worm. And eventually he, he decided this is a lot of work, but he, there, was a, there was a boy that was actually selling worms. And he had this can full of these writhing fat juicy worms that just looked so satisfying and and uh, the boy would cry out a feather for a worm a feather for a worm that sounded like a pretty good idea so the bird would take a feather out of its wing and pluck it off get to the, give it to the boy in exchange for a worm and he kept on doing this over and over again he, he knew he shouldn't but those worms just looked so juicy the boy comes around again, a feather for a worm, and the bird plucks another feather out of his wing, and he gives it to the boy in exchange for a worm. Eventually, as the leaves begin to fall off the trees, and the weather turned cooler, and the breeze, the winter ble- breeze began to flow, the bird realizes that his stomach has been full of worms, but his wings are now featherless. What promised satisfaction ended up taking more from him our idols are like that my dear friends your pet sins are like that they cannot keep promises they are not righteous and God is challenging you to look around and say can any God save like I can there is only one righteous God that can that is actually worth trusting in loving and obeying and that is the true God of the Bible our Lord Jesus Christ because he is a God who gives to us instead of ruining us and his righteousness is for our rescue and not our ruin there's the challenge now that challenge leads to an invitation and the invitation is this in verse 22 turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. You see how this this invitation follows from the challenge? If there are no other gods, if your idols 
are wooden things that you must carry. They don't carry you. They make promises. They'll always fail. They're not righteous. Okay, if we could eliminate all the competitors, nothing else that you can look for, for security, significance, or satisfaction, can deliver on the promise. There's just one, and that's God. Then the invitation is to turn to Him. Now, there are three things about this invitation that are worth noting from our text. First of all, it is a worldwide invitation. You see, it's in the text. Turn to me and be saved, not just the people of Israel, not just the people of Judah. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And this makes perfect sense from the context. Why? Because in that day, gods were regional gods. They were gods confined to nations or particular uh, industries. So you had a god of agriculture or a god of fertility or a god of the Babylonians, a god of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites would call upon their gods for their particular needs. If you, if you wanted your farm to do well, cry out to the gods of the rain and the harvest. If you want to have more kids, call out to the god of fertility. But this is saying there are no such gods. There's only one, so you need to turn to him. It's a worldwide invitation, not just the Canaanites, not just the Babylonians, not just the Assyrians, not just the Egyptians, not just the Israelites, all the ends of the earth. This is a worldwide invitation for everybody to turn to the one true God. Second, it's a face-to-face invitation. The word that's translated turn could be literally rendered face. Face me, God is saying. It has the word, in Hebrew, it has the word face in it. God, God is not only just calling people to, to turn to him from the uttermost ends of the earth. He, he's literally saying, put your face in my direction. Brother Dave Wetzel was talking about the fact that his son got married uh, a couple weekends ago. At, at wedding ceremonies and the ceremonies that I've uh, had the privilege of officiating, there's a point in the ceremony where the, the bride and groom, they face each other. They turn their faces toward each other and they say their vows to each other. Now that bride, when she says her vows, she's looking at the groom, her husband-to-be. There may be a lot of good-looking groomsmen out there, but she's not looking at them. There may, there may be a lot of good-looking dudes in the, in the crowd, but she's not looking at them. She's facing her husband-to-be. This is the idea when God is saying, turn to me, all ye ends of the earth, face me. It's a worldwide invitation. It's a face-to-face invitation, but it's also a radical invitation because it's an invitation to a couple things. First of all, to abandon what you were looking to for significant satisfaction and security and to admit that you were wrong in looking to it. Because in facing God as the righteous God, that is the only God that can keep His promises, you're also having to admit, I was totally wrong and unrighteous to put my trust and my love and my obedience to unrighteous idols. So to face God is to, say, is to admit not just that I did wrong, it's to admit that I am wrong. So the question that we need to face and, and can be confronted with is this. How can we ever face such a righteous God without a sense of despair? Because inevitably, inevitably, whenever you invite people to face a righteous God, the very source of all morals, the very source of what is right and wrong, okay, whenever you're invited to face a God like that, inevitably people have one of two reactions. They'll either say, I don't want anything to do with that. 
It's too much. It's too rigid. It's too hard. I, I, cannot, I cannot face that. That's, all, that's one kind of reaction. Another kind of reaction is this. Okay, I'm going to try then. I'm going to try to make my righteousness match his righteousness so that when I, he looks upon me and when I look upon him, I won't feel that sense of unworthiness. <laughs> but if you take the first route, it will inevitably lead to a life of, of complete chaos and despair. And if you take the second route, that is, I'm going to try to achieve something to be worthy of his righteous gaze. If you think you're achieving it, you're going to feel really proud, which is what happens to a lot of religious people. And at, what point, at whatever point you think that you're not achieving it, then you're going to fall into kind of despair and discouragement and even depression because you feel like, oh, I, 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 could, I could never earn this. So, but either way, either approach, which is the approach that people inevitably take when they're confronted by a righteous God, either approach leads to either pride or despair. The question is, how can we face a righteous God and yet be righteous and that leads us to the reason. There's the challenge. Find a God that can keep his promises, who's righteous like me. You'll never gonna, you're never going to find it. The invitation, face me, God says. Why? We find the reason in verse 24. Because only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be, shall be justified and shall glory. What is this saying? It's saying this. When you turn to God as the righteous one, you are turning to one who is not just holding you to a standard you cannot meet. You're, you're turning to one who is offering you his righteousness to declare you what you are not and that is righteous. The question and the, the main tension, in fact, the, the tension of the Old Testament is how is this going to happen? Well, Isaiah, a little later on in his prophecy, he begins to talk about someone, he calls him a servant, who is righteous, a righteous human being who will bear the sins of many. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he came as a completely righteous person. Look around, look at the world around us. Do you find anybody righteous? There is none righteous, no, not one. Ah, one comes to earth. Everything he ought to be, he is. Everything he said he would do, he did. Everything. You look at the life of Jesus, he'll always astound you. He'll always perplex you, always baffle you. You'll see, you'll see someone with, with majesty and yet humility. Someone with mind-blowing boldness, but, but gentle, childlike gentleness. You'll see someone who, who has such love, but also such sternness with those who are hypocritical. In Jesus, you find everything a human being should be. You'll find someone who's perfectly righteous. Okay, what happened to Jesus? He died as if he were unrighteous. Here's why. He was bearing the unrighteousness of you and me. Peter says he is 
it was the just, that is the righteous one, for the unjust, that is you and me, so that he might bring us to God. 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5 and verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, God made, I'm sorry, God, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was, as a righteous man, being treated as an unrighteous person. So when God invites us to come and see him, he invites us to see what Jesus did on our behalf so that we can be declared righteous. That is what it means to understand the righteousness of God. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 3. He says, now there is a righteousness apart from the law that's revealed. It's revealed in Jesus Christ, and it's given by grace. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for, for all who believe. For yes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And by that, Paul means this. How, how can God be righteous and make someone unrighteous righteous only if a righteous one bore the sins of those people so that we can say God's right and he makes me right too. You see, any consideration of this theme that we're looking at, God, the righteousness of God, must bring us to the cross of Christ where that righteousness was poured out on our behalf. It's kind of like God treats us like the father in that story the prodigal son treated his son. You remember the story? How that son, in an act of incomprehensible disrespect, demands his inheritance from his father and goes off and spends the money in all kinds of wicked living. And then he, he comes to the, the very bottom. He, he comes to the very depths and he... he he says, what am I doing here? He says, my father's servants have more to eat than I. He says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to be a servant of my father. Maybe someday I'll make it back up. At a distance, he starts coming back home and he's at a distance. His father sees him and runs to him and embraces his dirty, stinking, sinful son. And he says, go get the best robe and put it on this half-naked boy. It's like the robe of righteousness that we are wrapped in, not our own, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All the ground is sinking sand. He is my righteousness. I come before God not saying, okay, God, you're righteous, and I'm going to work really, really hard to make it up to you. Oh, God says, that's not, you don't understand my righteousness. It doesn't come about that way comes by believing that Jesus' death on the cross was for you so you can receive his righteousness by faith. That's how it comes. Any effort you would do apart from that will be tainted with pride, despair, anxiety. See, God's righteousness is for your rescue and not for your ruin. I was reading recently the story of a, of a preacher in Britain named Henry Venn. Um, 
He lived in the 1700s, and as a young man, he wanted to be serious and devout. He wanted to enter the ministry and be a, be a preacher. And he came across a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. I'm pretty sure that's not the kind of book that would come flying off the bookshelves uh, in, in, uh, in America today. A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. But it appealed to this young man, Henry Venn. And so the words describing Venn's first pastorate, he was earnest, zealous, moral, conscientious, scrupulously determined to do his duty, but, his biographer says, he knew nothing about the true gospel of Christ. Little by little, he began to find out that this book he had read, a serious call to a devout and holy life, while it said many good things, did not give sufficient honor to the righteousness of Christ. And little by little, he began to discover that he was, in reality, trying to work out a righteousness of his own while he had nothing to boast of. And little by little, he began to see that true Christianity was a plan for providing for man's needs as a ruined, fallen, and corrupt creature, and that the root of all vital religion is faith in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the scales begin to fall from his eyes. He went on to his next pastorate at the age of 35, where, where as a transformed man, now preaching not works righteousness, not what you can do to get to God, but what God has done to come to you because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He, found, he went to a city called Huddersfield. He found the place, a huge, dark, ignorant, immoral, irreligious manufacturing town. It says he left it shaken to its core by the gospel. See, no, no truly good work will come out of a belief that you can achieve your own righteousness because that kind of work will always be tainted by pride or anxiety or fear. It's only as you embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's what the reformers called, or theologians called, an alien righteousness. In other words, it doesn't come from within, it comes from without. An alien righteousness. Only as you embrace that righteousness, then can you actually begin pursuing true righteousness. See, those who clothe themselves with Christ's righteousness don't give up on trying to pursue righteousness. Now they actually can, not out of a sense of anxiety or duty or fear or pride, but out of gratitude for God because He's given it to them. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this teaching that God is a righteous God? First, you must trust His righteousness. You must trust His righteousness. Every, everyone in the world, everybody is trying to set about their own righteousness. It's just what we do naturally. We defend ourselves, we vindicate ourselves, we try to prove why we're right about this or that. And God is calling on you this morning, if you've never done it, to admit not just that you've done wrong, but that you are wrong. You see, that's a really hard thing to admit. It's the hardest thing you'll ever, ever admit. That's why the only way in which you could admit that is if you see at the same time that God makes you right because of Jesus Christ. How can you face, God is saying, face me. How can you face me? Because when you face him, you face him, you face his love poured out for you offering his righteousness to you to trust his righteousness now if you have my friends and i hope this is true of the most of you the majority of you 
you must rest in his righteousness. See, it's easy for us to forget that God's, that the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. It's easy for us to get into the mode of, I've got to prove myself, I've got to establish myself. And maybe you're, the, maybe you're that anxious kind of person. Oh, my friend, listen, rest in God's righteousness. Know that his righteousness alone is what will carry you through this life and allow you to stand one day in his presence with fullness of joy. Are you worried this morning? Are you worried that your righteousness isn't enough? It's not your righteousness anyway. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you worried that when you, when you meet God face to face, God's going to say, well, you didn't do this or you didn't do that. It's not about that anyway. It's about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So learn to rest in it now. Trust His righteousness. Rest in His righteousness. But also, if you're, rest, if you're trusting and resting in His righteousness, my friends, those of you who are must pursue righteousness. This doesn't mean pursue your own righteousness. This means live out what God has made you in Christ. You're not laboring for earning righteousness. You're working from the righteousness of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Paul didn't say work for your salvation. He said work out your salvation. Bring it to its intended conclusion. Okay, so you're a Christian. So you've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. It's like you've been, you're wearing shoes that are way too big for you now, but they're at least on your feet. Now grow into them. There's a gap between your, your toe and the, the, the end of that shoe. Yes, of course, we're robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. These robes are massive robes. In this life, we'll never truly fit them. But the Bible says, because you are robed in the righteousness of Christ, because you are righteous, pursue righteousness. Be the person that God has made you to be. Be the wife, the husband, the employer, the employee, the citizen, the brother, the sister, the grandmother, the grandfather that you should be. Be the one that tells everybody how good God is, who is eager to help, who is eager to bring about justice and reconciliation between warring, warring parties. Be that, not because you're trying to get something you don't have, but because you have something you could never earn. That's what true Christian sanctification is all about. It's a working from our righteousness in Jesus Christ, pursuing that righteousness, not because we're grasping towards something we're trying to earn, nor because we're afraid of losing something that we can't keep, but because we've been given something we can never lose, and that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My friend, is that, my believing friend, is that true of you? Are you pursuing righteousness? Or have you gotten to this idea that, well, I've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, so it doesn't matter what I do? Oh, that's not what the gospel teaches us. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, shall we sin now that grace may abound? God forbid. Don't you know you died to sin? You've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ, so pursue it in all your relationships. Trust His righteousness, rest in His righteousness, and pursue this righteousness. My friend, where is that gap between what you're doing and what you ought to do? If you're resting in Jesus' righteousness, then by the grace of God, pursue to close that gap, doing it by His grace alone. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Before we sing a closing song, 
let us take a moment to reflect on the righteousness of God. God says to you, my friend, face me, face me. Is that a terrifying thing to you? To face the righteousness of God? My friend, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, would you please listen carefully? You will face him. Someday you will face him. Will you face him as one who trusted in your own puny righteousness or as one who trusted in the righteousness of Christ? If you face him now, taking refuge in Jesus, his face toward you will be one of endless love and acceptance. But if not, my friends, I have sobering and sobering words for you. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ for your righteousness, you will be face him and he will say, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches. You will face him. You can face him now in his love, offering you his righteousness. I urge you to do that. And for those of you who have pursued righteousness by the grace of God, take a moment of silent reflection. Father, I pray that you would work these words into our hearts. You are a loving God, a God who invites all the ends of the earth to come to you, a God whose love is boundless, whose work for us is more than sufficient to meet our needs. And I pray for anyone who needs to face you in faith and see you as a loving Father that they would do that this morning. And for those who need to confess and turn about in some area of their lives, that they would have the confidence that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And may we rejoice in this, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.